Let's 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 pray and then we'll get started. Lord Jesus, again as we open up your word, we 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 recognize that your word is truth. And yet at times it's hard to understand. We pray, Lord, to a diligent study of your word that we would properly understand what you have revealed there. That as a result of of that proper understanding, we would believe rightly, but also do accordingly. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. So when we last left off in Ezekiel, which was two weeks ago, because uh, last week we had the, the kids program uh, for, for Christmas, uh, which was really just darn cute. Um, you'll note that in Ezekiel chapter 16, which is where we were, um, <laughs> uh, we had a, a PG-13 <laughs> description of, of, of the Lord's faithless bride, and uh, the, the details were salacious. And God's description of his faithless bride were less than flattering. And you'll know that I've said this before, and I'll continue to make the point, and that is, is that idolatry is, is, is the spiritual equivalent of adultery. And, uh, and, and you just kind of think this through. Um, you know, so there's there's a fellow who's uh, fallen in love with his secretary at work, right? And he's having a salacious affair. And I don't know what that guy is thinking because you know, at some point, this is all going to come out. And when it when it comes out, it always goes horribly. Uh, if you've spent any time in the corporate world, we've you know, I've seen this play out before, and it's just terrible to watch because what it is, what it ends up happening is is that he gets he gets caught. It absolutely traumatizes his wife. His kids are destroyed by it. His family, his his marriage blows apart. He loses half of his assets to his wife. Ends up having to pay child support, and then the affair that he was having. I mean, th- those don't th- those, that come, c- comes to a grinding halt too, because the two of them were not in it for the long term. They were just in it for the the short term pleasure. You know, what on earth are you thinking? And if you just think of the absolute destruction that happens in a human family as a result of adultery, now put yourself in the in kind of in the shoes of God here. And this is the reason why he's describing this. Idolatry is that exact same scenario run out spiritually. And the worst bit is that when you commit the sin of idolatry, the deity that you're ooing and awing after and and in and our fearing and obeying doesn't even exist it's that's that's the worst bit of all of this you're just sitting there going what is going on here you know and so you, you'll note that the demonic is always at play when it comes to idolatry and that's one of the big themes that we have to see here so when it was we as we kind of considered last last time these really really strong words that God had for idolatrous Judah, the faithless bride of Yahweh. Um, you know, let, let's not let's not forget just how absolutely reprehensible uh, the sin of idolatry is, and that when we, when we hear that God is a jealous God, that's not a fault in Him. Uh, you know, God 
is the one who made us. And for us, you know, to, you know, it's weird to say in these terms, but to traumatize God through, through idolatry just is, is just, it's horrifying at, at its core. And so God rightly lashes out in judgment against such things. So, but then we're going to hear in the midst of this, where we left off last week was the kind of the, 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 the little bit of the resolve, the Lord's everlasting covenant. So you got the faithless bride of the Lord, uh, this adulterous uh, bride who uh, who God cared for and raised and and loved and nurtured and and you know and all this kind of stuff and then she goes and you know and and gives her uh, you know, gives herself to every uh, foreign or foreign deity and every foreign country and man out there rather than being faithful to God. Now here's what it says: For thus says the Lord Yahweh, I will deal with you. As you have done, you who have despised the oath in breaking the covenant, yet I will remember my covenant with you in the days of your youth, and I will establish for you an everlasting covenant. Then you will remember your ways and be ashamed when you take your sisters, both your elder and your younger, and I give them to you as daughters, but not on account of the covenant of the covenant with you. I establish my covenant with you, and I sh- and and you shall know that I Yahweh, I am Yahweh, that you may remember and be confounded and never open your mouth again because of your shame, when I atone for you for all that you have done, declares the Lord Yahweh. And so you'll you'll note here this is like an out of the blue, not foreseen thing. Uh, normally, uh, when a husband is uh, cheated on by his wife and cheated on in such a way that his wife is like engaged in like prostitution, uh, that 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 the, there's no words of kindness here. But God is saying that He's going to atone for all that you have done. Wait, what? Okay, huh? Right. Such is the faithfulness and the love of God. And so you'll know in the midst of these words of horrific judgment, there is an absolute gospel note here that, that it, gets, and it ends up on. Law and gospel. That despite all of this, I'm going to atone for your sin. Wow. Okay. Yeah, you'll you'll know I, that that gospel never gets old because you know it it shows the absolute love, patience, steadfastness, long suffering of God, and it is truly His glory to forgive and pardon and to atone. So, all right. So the word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, propound a riddle, and speak a parable to the house of Israel. Say, thus says the Lord Yahweh. So here we've got one of these. Okay, we got a little bit of a parable and an enigmatic uh, statement by God that is going to need a little bit of unpacking and an explanation. So we'll see what we can work out of this, all right? All right, so here's the parable. A great eagle with great wings, long pinions, rich in plumage of many colors, came to Lebanon and took the top of the cedar. He broke off the topmost of its young twigs and carried it to a land of trade and set it in a city of merchants. Then he took the seed of the land and planted it in fertile soil. 
He placed it beside abundant waters. He set it like a willow twig and it sprouted and became a low spreading vine and its branches turned toward him and its roots remained where it stood. So it became a vine and produced branches and put out boughs. And there was another great eagle with great wings and much plumage. And behold, this vine bent its roots toward him and shot forth its branches toward him from the bed where it was planted that he might water it and had been planted on good soil by abundant waters that it might produce branches and bear fruit and become a, a noble vine. Thus says the Lord Yahweh, will it thrive? Will he not pull up its roots and cut off its fruit so that it withers, so that all of its fresh sprouting leaves wither? It will not take a strong arm or many people to pull it from its roots. Behold, it is planted. Will it thrive? Will it not utterly wither when the east wind strikes it and wither away on the bed where it, where it sprouted? <laughs> okay. So there you go. There's the parable. <laughs> and the question is, what does that mean? Okay. Well, we're going to do a little bit of work here. And uh, we'll, we'll see if I can pull this up in my Ezekiel commentary. All right. Let's see here. We want... Okay. Allegories. Okay. The allegory of the two eagles and the cedar spring that grew into a vine. Okay. So we're going to rely on a commentary here so that we don't mess this up. In the nature of the case, there is little, if any, explicit theological content in the riddle or the allegory narrated in these verses. Yet, of course, the rest of the chapter hangs on them. So, you know, we have to kind of understand this to kind of get the rest of the chapter because of the inseparable interrelation between translation and interpretation. Occasionally, a matter of interpretation was interjected into the text notes above in order to explain or defend a particular translational decision. For the most part, however, explicit theology does not emerge until chapter 17, verse 19. So you'll note that we don't have any theology until we get to verse 19, where it says, Therefore, thus says the Lord Yahweh, as I live, surely it is my oath that he despised and my covenant that he broke, and I will return it upon his head. The question is, who's the he here? Okay, so let's kind of take a look at what the allegory's meaning is before we we uh, we go further, so we can understand how the theology then works later in this. Okay. Okay, let's see. The image of cedar and the image of a vine as representing God's people are motifs that are prominent in other biblical passages. The most famous vine passage being John 15, where Jesus says, I am the true vine. My father is the vine dresser. Okay, so here's the meaning. The nature of the material continues to be non-theological, uh, at least on the surface, as these verses present historical interpretation of the allegory in 17, 1 through 10. The surface qualifier is necessary because of the ever-present temptation to divorce theology from history in one direction or another. I, I know a lot of theologians that do that, and I, they, they do that to their own peril. History unilluminated by revelation is at best mute and certainly does not disclose anything but inscrutable deus abons, ab, ab, absconditus. Um, that's a, this is a great sentence, by the way, here. And, and, and so what's really interesting is that 
this is a point that we we made in the sermon today that that I made, and that is is that to the untrained eye, the the eye that is not in tune with the word of God, Christ the infant doesn't look any different than any other baby boy of his time. He still cries. He fills his diapers. He nurses. He's going to grow like every other boy. He's going to have to learn his Aleph, his Baths, his Gimels, his Dallas. And, uh, and, and he's going to have to learn how to read and write. He's going to have to go to school. He's going to have, to, he's going to have chores. He, 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 so to the untrained eye, if you were to just look at the infancy history of Christ, there is no theology to be seen just in the history. The theology has to be given in other portions or given throughout the scripture. Otherwise, you don't know the theology. If it weren't for Simeon and Anna, we, you know, t- teaching us and teaching those people in the temple uh, who Christ was and what was going to happen, and they did this by the power of the Spirit, then for all intents and purposes, without that voice of God, it appears that you know you can't you can't even you cannot interpret history without theology and if you interpret history without theology then you you end up with this this latin phrase the 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 absconded deity you know the deity who's hidden who's gone who's been whisked away right so you'll note then that in reading about this parable this allegory of the the two eagles and this you know, top cedar twig thing and all this kind of stuff. Um, you do not want to fall into the trap of just reading history here without theology. The two have to go together. And I love the point that's being made here. So various theologies and philosophies may and do attempt to fill the void, but the gospel will never be discerned from any history alone. That's a great st- That's a great sentence and absolutely, most certainly true. Okay. You know, in fact, if you were, you know, kind of fast forwarding to uh, to Good Good Friday, which is going to be earlier this year, it's going to be you know at the end of March, beginning of April. Uh, you know, when you consider the history of Christ suffering, bleeding, and dying on the cross, if you just look at the at the mere history of it, you don't know the theology. It just looks like some poor bloke got nailed to a cross by the Roman Empire, and you know, and he and they mocked him until he died. That's what the history shows. But that the theology of what happens there has to be gleaned from the Word of God. So, same ideas here. So, just as the great, uh, just as great as a, a danger is the Docetic theology. Docetism is um, is a form of Gnostic theology. Docetism teaches us that. Um, Christ really wasn't God in human flesh. He only appeared, seemed to be. God in human flesh. I mean, he looked like God in human flesh, but he really wasn't. So that's a form of Gnosticism, which fails to see that God is the final author of all history and is directing it towards its conclusion at Christ's return. Docetic theologies allege that God is not involved in flesh and blood history, either because of his indifference to human affairs or because of his impotence. Uh, uh, So history is out of his control. (laughs) The Gnostic deity sounds a lot like... um, it sounds a lot like that uh, theology 
where you know God doesn't know the future at all. You know, it's, it's just kind of lame. You know, it sounds like that same thing. Such theologies are anti-incarnational in essence. In them, the Old Testament, because of its enormous historical content, will be one of the major casualties, and all that will be left is some purely intellectual, emotional enterprise. And that's kind of the point. You'll note that. Um, I think personally, Gnosticism and the you know and liberalizing theologies, like uh, the the woke ideology uh, and 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 the, and the modernist belief that that God cannot perform miracles and that miracles are not possible. These all are are directly related to Gnosticism. There's there's just no way around it. And at the end of the day, you sit there and go, what's the point of believing, of calling yourself a Christian when you don't believe what the text says? You know, I think about the video that I did before Christmas of that fellow who, you know, that, that woke liberal ideologue who from the stage at his church, uh, he, he couldn't he couldn't couldn't be limited to the pulpit just wandering the you know the, the chancel you know he, and he claimed that that Mary absolutely positively wasn't a virgin when she gave birth to Jesus you know and you sit there and you go what on earth makes you want to stay with invisible Christianity if you don't even believe the theology of the of the scriptures you know and and so you know they they always come up with basically hijacking these texts, evacuating it of the miraculous, evacuating of God's intervention in human history. And then at the end of it, you get some kind of moralizing philosophy kind of thing. And you'll note here, I know this is going to sound weird, that um, liberals are very moralistic. It's just that they have a completely different set of morals than the morals revealed in Scripture. Um, it's it's an, a completely different focus altogether. Uh, so, you know, I, I, I always like to tell this story that um, when we, you know, I, I, decades ago now, holy smokes, when was this? <laughs> it was almost two decades ago. Uh, Barb and I were attending a, a Missouri Synod congregation in, uh, in Indiana. And when we were there, uh, you know, I, I, was, I was doing the podcast and uh, it, it seemed like at the time, kind of like the the threat de jour against Christianity wasn't it wasn't the charismatic movement as we know it now, the NAR that was still ramping up. Uh, it was the seeker driven, purpose driven stuff and stuff like this, and people were basically you know transforming their churches into coffee houses and things like this. And so I I took I just to I have you noticed I'm a little snarky at times. Um, um just to. <laughs> Luis, I appreciate that. <laughs> no, Chris, it's not. Good. So I, I, they had, they had set up on a one of those those uh, collapsible long tables. They had set up a, a big coffee pot, like a you know a big coffee pot, and next to the coffee pot, they had put like the kind of coffee creamer that you buy at like you know. Sam's Club or something like that the the big old thing of of uh, of coffee creamer and next to that was a, a thing of 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 pure you know of of CNH pure cane sugar or something like that right and uh, and so 
you know, I took a photograph of it and I and I just and I put it on social media and basically said, he, he, our church has decided that they're going to be they're going to be cool and relevant. We have we now have a coffee bar, okay, and <laughs> nothing cool or relevant about it. But here's the weird thing that happened after I posted that photograph. The um, the emergent guys who who, who kind of hate watched me on social media, they lost their minds. And and accuse me of every sin that you could possibly imagine, and what was my what was the big offense? They claimed that the um, the the sugar that was uh, being offered at our church was uh, put out by a colonialist oppressive uh, company, and 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 that uh, and that by using that sugar we were uh, we were uh, in, uh, basically funding human slavery and trafficking and colonialism and stuff like this. And it's like, are you kidding me? You, you know, it's like, it's like, what? <laughs> you know, in fact, um, if you, if you travel to Europe in, in the United Kingdom, there's a coffee house. The name of the coffee house is Costa, C-O-S-T-A. And if you ever go into a Costa, uh, uh, um, coffee house, they make a big deal about the fact that all of their coffee, all of their sugar, all of their creamers and stuff like this are sourced in a way that doesn't, does, that is contra colonialism and, and things like this. And, and, and you sit there and, and I, and I realized at that point that what, what these people have done is, is that they've exchanged certain morals of God, especially sexual ethics when it comes to what the scripture says, and, they, and they're highly legalistic in a different way. I don't ever accuse liberals of not being legalistic. They're extremely legalistic, but just in a way that doesn't make biblical sense. So, all right, well, I'm off topic. Let's keep going. So then talking about these docetistic uh, ideologies and, you know, they, they deny that God's redemptive actions at Bethlehem, Christ's incarnation of the Virgin Mary and Calvary, his physical agony and atonement, death and bodily resurrection took place in real physical history. And so in them, those events must at best retain only symbolic value. Fascinating when you consider that, you know, how, how if you don't believe in the actual virgin birth of Christ and you don't believe in Christ's physical resurrection from the grave and all this kind of stuff, what are you left with? Something like Aesop's fable. The moral of the story is, uh, you know, uh, get up early before the uh, the other birds eat the worms. I mean, it just, it's weird stuff like that, right? Okay. <sighs> okay, Don is weighed in. Hang on a second here. It says, always use American crystal beet sugar grown, grown and processed by North Dakota and Minnesota farmers. They haven't col col colonialized anything. <laughs> I, I, I will say this, that I, I know... I so I know some Minnesotans and North Dakotans who are super legalistic about American Crystal too. If you show up with CNH sugar, you will be you'll have your ears boxed. Okay, you can't do that here. <laughs> Lily says recycling everything is also very important. Better recycle or else. A signal to everyone that you are doing it right. <laughs> James says liberalism, legalistic, dare say fascistic. You know you're not wrong. Uh, <laughs> You know, uh, I would note that uh, you know a, a lot of liberals would balk at the idea that they're fascistic. But the thing is, is that fascism is a is is a form of 
uh, Marxist socialism. It's it's there's just no way around it. So you know the the, the they they actually are are kissing cousins. So yeah, I when you when you see the communists and the fascists fighting each other, run. It's like it's like Godzilla and Rodan fighting in Tokyo. It's just going to be death and destruction all over the place. You know, stay out of that fight if you can. Anyway, all right, moving on. All this means that uh, chapter 17, 11 through 18 is an indispensable part of the exegesis of the chapter. The basic historical details they relate about Israel are just as integral to salvation history as the historical fact of the gospel. Traditionally summarized in the baptismal apostles' creed, among those facts, one also included in the Nicene Creed is that Christ's vicarious atonement took place under Pontius Pilate, a historical detail that anchors the gospel in actual history. Funny enough, I, I may have mentioned this a few weeks ago that um, I remember back in my Concordia University days, um, a fellow who who legitimately struggled with the phrase suffered under Pontius Pilate. Um, in the creed, that that was the big offending bit because he had a hard time believing that God can intervene in human history, and that uh, the the story of Christ's death, burial, resurrection, ascension is actually history rather than some kind of um, religious spiritual legend. So, but it most certainly is not Christ's death, his life, his his virgin birth, his life, death burial resurrection and ascension are all historical that's not this is not it's not some kind of a legend so then here's the meaning the first eagle the first eagle mentioned chapter 17 3 through 6 is actually nebuchadnezzar the king of babylon the cedar is said to be in lebanon the land famous for its cedars but the tree represents jerusalem that the eagle breaks off the uh, topmost of its, the cedar shoots, refers to Nebuchadnezzar removing King Jehoiakim, Jehoiakin, whom he took to Babylon along with the other leading Israelites in the de- deportation recorded in Second Kings, uh, chapter twenty-four, ten through sixteen. So Nebuchadnezzar is the eagle. The topmost bit is actually what it's 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 the royal family and being deposed by King Nebuchadnezzar. The member of the royal family was Jehoiakim's uncle Mataniah, whom Nebuchadnezzar renamed Zedekiah and stationed as his vassal king over Judah. The act of renaming him probably was intended as a reminder that the real power lay with Nebuchadnezzar. That Zedekiah rebelled against Nebuchadnezzar is also recorded, uh, is recorded also in 2 Kings 24 and elaborated in 2 Chronicles 36. Not all the details of the rebellion are known, but it is clear that it was no sudden impulse by Zedekiah, but probably had been brewing almost since his ascension. Jeremiah 27 records an order from Yahweh to Jeremiah to denounce Zedekiah in the fourth year of his reign for joining four neighbors who had met to conspire against Babylon. In Jeremiah 15, mentions a visit by Zedekiah to Babylon, presumably to defend his behavior, which apparently he did successfully since he retained his office for a little while longer. At about the same time, I cannot pronounce that word. (laughs) One of the Egyptian pharaohs, pharaohs, Samatikus II, that guy, Samatikus Okay, uh, he assumed power in Egypt and may well have encouraged Zedekiah to revolt, promising him assistance if needed. Clearly, when the Babylonian siege of Jerusalem began, Judah looked for assistance from Samatikus' successor, Hophra, but to no avail. This, thus, Egypt is the second great eagle toward which the, the vine turned. 
So you, so you got Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar in Egypt. They're, they're all kind of working. The uprooting of the vine and its des- desiccation by the east wind, since Babylon is east of Israel, in 179 correspond to the punishment described in 176 through 18. It refers to the destruction of Jerusalem by Nebuchadnezzar. Zedekiah fled, but he did not escape. His sons were slaughtered in his presence before he was blinded and brought to Babylon, where he died, fulfilling Ezekiel 17:16. Okay. All right. So theological meaning. Let's take a look at the theological meaning. And then well, actually I should probably read out a little bit more here and then we'll, we'll look at the theological meaning. And at least now we understand what the different things in the parable represent. Lily says, I always get the Assyrians and the Babylonians mixed up. What is the connection between these two empires? Um, <laughs> I don't know the formal connection. Uh, you know, the, the, the Assyrians... Um, I have to. One has to wonder if the Assyrians were not uh, part of like the the early proto uh, the proto nation that would become Babylon. Babylon itself was uh, it, it's kind of like a multi ethnic state. It's not one that is comprised of just one thing. And and the Assyrians, I think, get rolled up into uh, into that into that empire. Uh, the Medes, the Persians, the Assyrians, and uh, and and all of them. It it, it kind of rolls over and takes over everybody. So there is there is a connection, but Assyrians, I think, are going to be more, um, kind of more ancient than the Babylonians. So I'm doing this from memory. Hopefully I'm not messing it up too much. All right. So let me, let me back up now and let's take a look at the text and see, now that we kind of know what the reference are, the one eagle is Nebuchadnezzar, the second eagle is Egypt. And God asked the question, and what, you know, what has been taken out away is the royal family, hence the stump of David, if you would, the stump of Jesse. Um, all right, let's see here. So the question it asked, behold, it is planted. Will it thrive? Will it not utterly wither away when the east wind strikes it? Wither away on the bed where it is sprouted. So then the word of Yahweh came to me. Say now to the rebellious house, do you not know what these things mean? It will tell them, behold, the king of Babylon came to Jerusalem and took her king and her princes and brought them to him to Babylon, hence the first eagle. And... He took one of the royal offspring and made a covenant with him, putting him under oath, the chief men of the land he had taken away, that the kingdom might be humble and not lift itself up and keep his covenant that it might stand. But he rebelled against him by sending his ambassadors to Egypt that he might give him horses and a large army. Will he thrive? Can anyone escape who does such things? Can he break the covenant and yet escape? I think the answer to God's questions are no, no, and no. You know, I'm beginning to see a negative answer here. So as I live, declares the Lord Yahweh, surely in the place where the king dwells, who made him king, whose oath he despised, and whose covenant with him he broke in Babylon, he shall die. Pharaoh with his mighty army and great company will not help him in war when mounds are cast up and siege walls built to cut off many lives. He despised the oath in breaking the covenant and behold, he gave his hand and did all these things. He shall not escape. Therefore, thus says the Lord Yahweh, as I live, surely it is my oath that he despised and my covenant that he broke. I will return it upon his head. 
And so you know that this is this is then making reference to some of the even the things that God said to you know through prophet Jeremiah. All right. And so let's see here. I will spread my net over him and he shall be taken in my snare. I will bring him to Babylon and enter into judgment with him there for the treachery he has committed against me. And all the pick of his troops shall fall by the sword and the survivors shall be scattered to every wind. And you shall know that I am Yahweh. I have spoken. Now, interesting here. Um, this is where you'll note that Although Zedekiah was captured by the forces of Nebuchadnezzar, near the city of Jericho, by the way, um, that, that despite the fact that he was caught by human beings, it was God who laid the snare, God who cast the net, and Nebuchadnezzar was God's net. So... All right, so we continue on. And all the pick of the troops, so they will fall. I'm, okay, thus says the Lord Yahweh, I myself will take a sprig from the lofty top of the cedar and will set it out. I will break off from the topmost of its young twigs a tender one. And I myself will plant it on a high and lofty mountain. On the mountain height of Israel, I will plant it that it may bear branches and produce fruit and become a noble cedar. And under it will dwell every kind of bird in the shade of its branches. Birds of every sort will nest and all the trees of the field shall know that I am Yahweh. I will bring low the high tree and make high the low tree, dry up the green tree and make the dry tree flourish. I am Yahweh. I have spoken. I will do it. Now, here's the fun part about this, <laughs> is that, all right, the standard question is, who is that about? And if you say, the, the standard answer had better be, that's, that sounds like it's got to be about Jesus. That's kind of the point. And you'll note some of the same imagery that is used here about a, this, this tree growing and, and every kind of bird and shade and all that kind of stuff. That was used, that same language was used by God to describe the kingdom of Nebuchadnezzar. And, uh, and then Nebuchadnezzar's tree was lopped down, right? Um, so this here is God himself taking a sprig uh, from the lofty top from the, the, the family, royal family itself, and then that, that tree growing, right? That, the, and and it, it, the fun pit here is you can, you, you can see the cross kind of in sight. I will bring low the high tree. All the lofty trees kind of represent you know, the kings of the earth at this point. I will make all those lofty trees low, and I will make high the low tree, that's Christ. And again, think incarnation here. This goes really well with our Christmas text today. Um, I, I, I will dry up the green tree. So the living trees right now, they're all going to dry up, and I'll make the dry tree flourish. Ooh, ooh, ooh. That has to be the cross, right? <laughs> I'm just saying, you know, you know, prove me wrong. <laughs> That's the way, you know, that has to be the cross. I, there is no drier, deader tree than the cross of Christ. And yet the, that dry tree God causes to flourish, right? So um, Karen says, that sprig parable reminds me of the parable of Christ talked about, about the faith the size of a mustard seed growing into a tree in which the birds roost. Karen, you're not wrong. That fact, that's a great connection. That is that is a most appropriate connection. That's a, that's a well done here. So let's let's fact check me to see if I if I'm too far off. But 
You'll note here, so in the Bibles and Christianity's two-storied view of history, the focus now shifts to the upper heavenly one where earthly history is really made. What a great sentence, okay? Okay. You think you know what's going on. Do you now? You, you, you follow the news religiously. You watch the news channel. You're, you know what's happening in the Middle East. You, you're aware of, of the potential war or conflict with China and, and their machinations out there in the, the other side of the Pacific Ocean. You think you know what's going on? No, you don't. You don't know a thing. <laughs> you know, just... <laughs> and I, I would note that if, if you want to be a good student of history and have a proper understanding of real earthly history, you cannot, you cannot be a careful student of history apart from knowing that Christ Jesus is King of Kings and Lord of Lords, right? Everything has to be interpreted theologically. Don't believe me? Let me remind you here of what Romans 13 says. All right, let's see here. I want Romans 13. <clears throat> Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Wait, what? <laughs> Let's let that settle for a second here. Just, you know, you know, I'm going to do one of those psalm things where we do a say law. Just let that sit there for a second. I'm going to take a swig of coffee. Are you saying that God established the, the Soviet Union? Yep. China? Uh-huh. Oh, no. <laughs> what? Joe Biden? Yeah. <laughs> you know, and I would note that uh, that some sometimes God allows uh, magistrates and kings and and heads of state to be a a, a form of His judgment. On <laughs> at this point, I would say America has all the signs necessary if they would just interpret the current administration theologically that that to, that we, we would call on all Christians to repent in sackcloth and ashes and pray for the pray, pray for the repentance of the nation. <clears throat> we get the, the leaders we deserve. I, yeah, I, 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 as, as true as that is, I fear we deserve much worse. So, okay. And God does overthrow them. That's true. Mm, Christians don't, but God does. Okay. Those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed. Those who resist will incur judgment. I would note that in our day, we've seen a rise of something called Christian nationalism. I don't know how they reconcile uh, their beliefs with uh, with this text. You know, um, you know, the, the, you know. So you've got there's kind of like there's different types of Christian nationalists. So on the one hand, you've got the people who claim that they've got to somehow create a Christian nation. We have no we have no orders to do such a thing, uh, and then you've got the 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 truly legitimately fascistic uh, anti-Semitic version. You know they, that ref, you know, reflects a modern day uh, reincarnation of Nazi ideology. Uh, the, these are people who who are calling for the overthrow of the uh, the current U.S. government and installing in place a Christian monarch over. Over uh, over the United States, who would then deport anybody who wasn't uh, of white European descent, you know, 
or put them in concentration camps. Just crazy stuff. I, I wish I, I, I wish that wasn't true, but it is. But I don't see how they how they under how they get around a text like this. Whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed. Uh, you know, as awful as the United States is, um, it's a duly instituted. Uh, God-appointed governing authority on planet Earth. Rulers are not a terror to do good uh, to uh, to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is an authority? Then do what's good, and you will receive his approval. And Paul's writing this about the you know the Roman Empire, right? Okay. So then do what's good, you'll receive his approval for he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid for he does not bear the sword in vain for he is the servant of God an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Okay. Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this, you pay taxes for the authorities are ministers of God attending to this very thing. Now, when the governing authority now begins punishing good and exalting evil, what do we do? We still submit to the governing authorities, but where they tell, if they teach us to contradict God's word, we tell them no. We have to, we have to obey God rather than you. Uh, but we call that we call the state to repent and to get back to their duly instituted job of uh, given to them by Christ to punish evildoers. So you'll note that some 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 states uh, they don't do their duty. So. The Jennings said, when we, when Trump became president, we had multiple pastors in our old town that wished harm on him. I've seen that before. Yeah. You know, I, in, in, yeah, that's, 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 that's not how Christians are to behave. Okay. You assume that they've read this text and comprehend it. (laughs) Um, I know that, that, yeah, that, that may be an incorrect assumption on my part. Oh, bummer. A great question is who does God use to overthrow these governments and that are terrors to those who and and, and that are terrors to those who do good? Um, so Adam, I would note that um, as a Christian, that's uh, I, I that's not for me to participate in. You know, uh, I, I although I would note that there is one notable person in uh, in in 20th century history that stands enigmatically. And that was uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Bonhoeffer was an interesting fellow, um, uh, a pastor, theologian, and spy and co-conspirator in Operation Valkyrie uh, to basically assassinate Adolf Hitler. Of course, he he was put to death for his participation in Operation Valkyrie. But... Yeah, you, you get the idea. It's there. There there's some some very interesting things that have to be considered. You know, when when the government is is doing is murdering you know its citizens left and right and murdering other people's citizens left and right. Um, yeah, the, the, at that point you have you can't obey the government. But uh, you'll note that I would note that Adolf Hitler was not overthrown by any insurrection. He was overthrown by other states. You know, uh, the United States and Russia and the United Kingdom uh, working together, and and then the allies, uh, you know, of 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 the European nations that were you know under the boot of of Nazis, they all worked together to overthrow the Nazi regime, and so God used them for the for that purpose. So, but all all other attempts failed. 
And uh, one has to wonder, you know, what that's about. Okay, what is the best place to start ordering these commentaries? Yeah, Concordia Publishing House is, is uh, Jody. That my these commentaries, I get them through Concordia Publishing House. But I would note here, uh, since you know, you're kind of asking a question about my commentaries. So um, you'll note that uh, when I'm teaching on fighting for the faith, I use uh, I use accordance. Uh, but when I'm teaching on complex books of the Bible that require some help from commentaries, I'm using Logos. And um, let me let me show you. Um, let's see here. I want to go here because um, I can I can legitimately say this, and that is that um, I don't I don't have any more room in my house for more books. If you've been to my house, you know that <laughs> it's, it's it's like it's almost hit like like joke proportions how many books we have here between my wife and I um, you get the feeling that reading is kind of a big deal in our family but Logos is the software that I use for my for my theological library for the most part and I also use Kindle books but it's not it's Kindle is just a, a reader whereas Logos is a whole system but um, if you were to go to uh, Concordia I'm gonna spell it right Concordia commentary Okay, there we go. All right. So uh, these, the, the Logos versions have to be purchased from Logos directly. And so, um, you know, I've, you know, I've got a, a very large number of the Concordia commentaries. And I, every year I add, you know, more and more books to my library from the Concordia commentary series. But, uh, but I get them, I get them on Logos so that I can, I can read them on my iPad. I can you know read them online and things like this. Okay. All right, let's come back to this. All right. So in the, in the Bible and Christianity's two-story view of history, the focus now shifts to the upper heavenly one where earthly history is really made. It has often been noted that the Bible really has no vocable corresponding to our history, which as a discipline divorced from theology is a child of the enlightenment. That That's a great... Another great start statement. It's like, I, <laughs> that's so well said. It is not that what people call and know as history is illusory or some platonic shadow of reality outside of the cave, but that it is the, but it is the only part of the totality that apart from the scriptures is accessible to human reason and the senses. Thus, it is no accident that in many respects, the theological interpretation of the allegory does not, does little more than restate what has already been explained in the preceding verse, except that God now becomes the constant subject. Everything is now viewed subspecies. You see, eternatitatis as part of God's eternal plan. The divine revelation about the purpose and goal of history moves from the Deus absconditus to the Deus revelatus, the, the revealed deity. The theme of Israel breaking the covenant recalls 1659, and the result that Yahweh will impose the proper punishment on the head of the offender. Now, a little bit of a note here. So let's let's kind of take what he's saying here and let's then run history through a proper understanding of God's word. Going back then to the the 2020 election, okay? Uh the, the 2020 election you had Trump's spiritual advisors all prophesying that he was going to be reelected. Okay? Uh, and how did that go, by the way, for 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 Trump? Okay, <laughs> not so good. Okay, 
And that being the case, um, I would note that God has a funny way, and we can we can get this from biblical theology, of repudiating false prophets. You know, and so you know, I I, I quipped back then that you know if they really wanted. Trump to win the election, they should have prophesied that Biden would have won, you know, because <laughs> God seemed to see fit to the exact opposite. And then when uh, when uh, Kenneth Copeland decreed and declared that the COVID-19, that the, the pandemic ended in March of 2020, uh, how, how'd that work out for the world? It didn't, it didn't, right? It, that, the thing drug out for another year and a half. Uh, <laughs> that being the case, you know, it's like, I, I would note there is a kind of a way of theologically interpreting some of what's going on here. And so you, you, you can't say, thus saith the Lord. You can say that person's a false prophet. And it's and, and it seems interesting that God set about to contradict the false prophets of today and to punish those people who are listening to them, which then kind of leads to the next question with the up, upcoming 2024 election. Um, has Trump repented of his uh, spiritual advisors? Um, it, you know, or is he still is he still hanging out with those yahoos? You know, um, you know, I I I, I look at I, I look at you know Trump's run in twenty twenty four and sit there and go this, this theologically is not a good thing. You know. Um, you know, on multiple on multiple levels. So you know, I, I just have to kind of sort that all out and think accordingly, right? Okay. All right. So you get the idea here. Is I love the point that's being made in the commentary that that we cannot divorce a proper study of history from theology. The two always go together. And if you if you divorce history from theology, you're you're you got. You got a story without any way of interpreting the meaning of it, right? Yeah, and and that's the, kind of the point of modern day history is that it it, it evacuates God <coughs> from His dealings within our own human history. And I would note that uh, you, you you think all the way back to this time of the Civil War, the people who uh, who fought in the Civil War, the and the men who led the the nation through the American Civil War they believed that uh, the Civil War was God's judgment against uh, slavery and they interpreted the, the 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 destruction and the suffering and the and the cataclysm of the Civil War through the the, the lens of Christian theology and uh, and as a result of it it gave meaning to what happened nowadays you know what what's the meaning behind any of the wars or the battles or the things that take place in our history because nobody even considers god's involvement in any of it you know which is which is a uh, which is a formula for disaster okay okay jody says there seems to be an odd worship of trump as some kind of savior um, to save the nation, though we need to pray for, for that freedom. Yeah, no, I, there is a weird, uh, almost cult-like obsession with Trump, you know, and I, I, I legitimately do not understand it. Anything? Yeah, it's a Cyrus thing. You no, know, they, they use Cyrus as the pretense. They, they, they call they call Trump the Cyrus of our times. He's not. Joe, is that a type of idol worship? For some, yes, absolutely. Uh, I, I would note for some people that their absolute belief that Trump is the savior of the nation 
is uh, it is it is pure idolatry. I, I'm pretty sure Christ is the savior of the world, including the United States. Um, and so we, we we humbly pray to God that He give us good magistrates and leaders. Um, and I'm, I'm pretty sure there's more than one guy that could fill those shoes. You know, so you know, just just saying. I all right, um, all right. Let's see here. Um, to look at my time. Okay. I do not have the ability to start a next, another section because this has to be dealt with on its own. So what we're going to do here is we're going to, uh, we're going to end our Bible study here. All right. Peace to you all, Lord willing. We will see you next time. Happy, Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year to you. We'll see you all next year.